So what I'd like to do is continue um, the talk or uh, orientation that we began last week. Here's here's the question. How many people were not here last week? Oh wow, that's impressive. How many people how many people were here last week? That's impressive too. Is that the same people? <laughs> okay, so that no, that was good to see how many people weren't here because I'm gonna say a little bit about what I talked about last week. Um, I talked about eros and sexuality as part of practice. And I talked about it uh, from a, a big perspective um, of um, what is it to include all of who and what we are as part of practice. Like we're not trying to practice in this little area or this one area or this simple area or this good area and not practice in this big area or in this bad area or in this wrong area. You know, we want to practice in this human domain in this human reality that it has an erotic dimension to it. Every, everybody got that? Right? Everybody knows that's part of what's sitting in your seat and that's what we're studying is what's sitting in your seat. We're studying what's sitting here because what's sitting here is the doorway to awakening and means your suffering, your happiness, your personality, you're not personality. These are all part of the doorways to understanding reality and waking up. So, one of the areas of practice that I think is totally valuable and important to be able to include is eros and sexuality. And of course, it's not just me who thinks that. The Buddha thought that. He talked about it. It's taught in all the Buddhist traditions in, in a variety of ways. And it's, I think, an important part of practice. And a little bit last week, I gave some context for my own self, which is uh, could be helpful. Maybe it's not so helpful. But either way, I'm going to give you that context, which is I happen to be a pro-sexuality person. <laughs> you know, that's some category, right? So, <laughs> I finally made it into one of the categories. And meaning that I like sex, I like sexuality, and I think it's an important or valuable part of our life to start to wake up with, too. And by saying, oh, I like sexuality, or I like sex, doesn't mean, oh, you know, I'm doing it all day long. <laughs> you know, it's, you know it's, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to not do. It's here either way, whether we're enacting it or whether we're not enacting it. The aliveness, the erotic domain of reality, the alive domain of reality is sitting here. And it's sitting here no matter who we are, what our orientation is towards sexuality, what our gender is in relation to who we are, and then sexuality, and also, and what our age is, doesn't matter. It's still here. In other words, the erotic part of life, or the creative domain of reality, which sexuality and eros is part of, that's right here. And we are all a manifestation of that 
domain of reality. Everybody got that? Right? Like, that's how we got here. Right? And that's just an amazing phenomenon in and of itself that we are like all of reality. We are birthed. Right? We are all birthed. I mean, just that. It's such a, you know, and every plant is born. Every animal is born. Everything that lives comes into birth and stays for a while, or a day, or a year, or 50 years, or 100 years, or more, and then disappears, vanishes, or changes domain. Who knows? I can assure you we will all learn more about what happens further on, because it's part of reality. And I said this last week, I'll say it again, it's one of the things I always love about Zen. They always talk about birth, hyphen, and hyphen, death. It's all connected. It's all part of life, birth and death. And we're all learning about it. We're all studying it. We're all waking up to this reality, this amazing erotic reality that's here. And so, you know, so I gave a, a big perspective about eros, sexuality, aliveness as practice. And as part of our practice, and what parts do we deny? What parts do we turn away from? What parts are we afraid of? And what parts are we open to? And what does it mean then to be free and alive? and part of the manifestation of reality that is sitting here. And, uh, and it particularly talking about the sexual domain of the erotic realm. And so um, today I'd like to do, I'd like to continue to talk about this domain of reality, or this part of our humanness, and um, and be a little go a little more through the Dharmic understanding of it in a little bit more traditional way. We'll see. It's funny because this is based on an old talk that I've done for many years now, or a number of years. And in the old days when I did it, I used to divide the room in half. Meaning, and even though the room is divided in half, I didn't do it the, the way I used to do it. I used to divide, oh, we put... Uh, uh, women on one half of the room and men on the other half of the room like would happen if you go into a traditional Buddhist practice place in most of Asia 95% of Asia that's what would happen men on one side women on the other side and I and I did it a number of years of course people had total reactions to me doing something like that what are you doing why are you doing that what does that mean I'm not I'm not a whatever you think I am, right? right? Or I am what you think I am, and I don't want to be categorized that way. And, and uh, of course, it's not what it... I don't care what you are. <laughs> I'm happy for you to be whatever it is you think you are. And, um, <laughs> and, but, but it's just interesting to see um, what the tradition handed down around these questions, around eros, sexuality, gender, sexual orientation, 
uh, uh, taboo, positive, negative, etc. Because it's there in the heritage of all religions. Right, not just Buddhism, but everywhere in Buddhism. And so I was looking for a nice Buddhist quote this time, and I found one. It's from the sixth Dalai Lama. And we could all speculate on how sexual the sixth Dalai Lama might have been, but he said, he said, if one's thoughts, if one's thoughts toward the Dharma, if one's thoughts towards the Dharma were of the same intensity as those towards love. If one's thoughts towards the Dharma were of the same intensity as those towards love, one would become a Buddha in this very body, in this very life. If one's thoughts towards the Dharma were of the same intensity as those towards love, one would become a Buddha in this very body, in this very life. So, it's one of the reasons, uh, I hope you see, that it's a relevant topic for us to look at, for, for each of us, because each of us has an erotic, sexual component to what's sitting here, to who and what we are, and to what makes us us as humans, or even, probably a better way to say it, as, as living beings as animals, right? Because everybody get that? We're all animals, right? Try it on, really, if you're not used to it, because it's true. And so, last week a little bit, I asked how many people, and I want, and it's the same question, I'll just ask it again, how many people have ever talked about sexuality as part of practice? Let me see, how many people have? Okay, great. How many people have it? Yeah. Great. Even better. I'm, I, I know I shouldn't say it this way, but I like virgins. <laughs> In other words, I like the freshness of coming into reality where we don't know what will happen because it's so true that it's so much really the reality of every day of every moment of our experience. We don't know what's going to happen. We may think we know, we may believe we know, we act as if we know, but sooner or later reality will surprise us with its reality. So, um, I was thinking a little about how we relate, um, or, or how, meaning in Buddhism or in the West, how we relate to sexuality, and it reminded me of a story I heard about the, how the Pali Canon, which is the Buddhist Canon, the text in Pali, which was a pre-Sanskrit language, um, where it was translated into English originally in England. And the woman who did it, I.B. Horner, wouldn't translate parts of the Pali Canon to English because they were too explicit. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> In other words, they were too sexually explicit and she was had her moral ground or, or whatever it might have been about not wanting it in English. And so this is part of how we in the West 
relate to this aspect of the Dharma, which was very um, explicit in Buddhism in many, many ways. So here's a question for you. I'm not going to ask you to answer this out loud, but just even in your own heart and mind. So take a moment and think about your first erotic experience. And when I say erotic, let it be a very broad understanding of eros. It could be sexual or it could be sensual. Like, what was your first erotic experience that caught your attention to the amazing magic of humanness and human reality? Just to see what comes, and what comes might be pleasurable, or neutral, or unpleasant. Could be either way. Either way being any of the three ways, any of the three characteristics in that way. And, and I have my own uh, uh, thoughts about this. I'm going to tell you a couple of them. But one I'm going to save till later. I thought the, the more physical one I'll save till later. But, uh, but it came to me today, my first erotic experience. Um, and I need, I need a shawl. I need a shawl. Thank you. So my first erotic experience, what I'm calling eros, which has to do with the magic or mystery of our connectedness and the impact it can have on consciousness, right? And so I was born Jewish and, you know, we went to synagogue kind of regularly or regularly enough, at least for me. And, and again, and at very young, I didn't know anything. It was kind of a fun thing, and people were social, and it wasn't. But somewhere, and I, I don't remember how young, but I'm very young here. I'm, I'm five or less. And somewhere in there, and I remember, and I, I can't remember if it was somebody's bar mitzvah or not, but, but what I remember is, uh, all of a sudden, some of the men, and so it was a social scene, it's how I remember it mostly, but, and I can't do this really well, this is a small show, but it'll, it'll, I'll try. Some of the men went to get this. that I saw some people relating to the numinous. And remember, I defined numinous last week, I think, which means sacred or holy. It was the first time I saw people relating to something that was not conventional or not usual. And they weren't afraid to do it. And they did it in this way that, that had an impact on me that I'm including in the realm of erotic because it awoke the mystery of reality in me. It was like I knew something was happening, I knew it was important, and I didn't know what it was, and it didn't matter that I didn't know. It, it, it had its magnetism, it had its draw. Thank you. 
and it, it was powerful. And so, when we start to look at this question of what is it to practice with our humanness in one of its most powerful domains of uh, phenomena, which we call eros and sexuality, uh, let yourself be open to whatever may happen, good or bad, and stay aware, stay awake to what's here, even as I'm talking about it. You're liking, not liking it, interested, not interested, reactions <laughs> that may happen or not happen, excitement, anything. And because it's all part of practice of paying attention to this domain of reality that's sitting here. <clears throat> so, so I hope to talk about a few different of the Buddhist understanding of the myths or the teachings and practices and um, and I'll, I'll see how far I get. I hope to get where we can do some questions and, and answers, but it might not happen tonight. We might do more questions and, and responses or discussion next week because it's a big topic that we're, we've taken on for these few weeks. And, and I'll, I'll quickly say a few words about the Buddha's sex life, which I've talked about before, right? But most, a lot of people still don't know so much about the Buddha's sex life. Well, the, sim- the simple version is that the Buddha was a prince, and he lived the life of a prince, which means he lived a totally hedonistic life. And that's what one could do at that time, in that culture, at that class, right? And also, his father wanted him to remain home, right? He had kind of a Jewish mother-father. <laughs> so he wanted him to stay home, so he was going to give him whatever he liked, right? And, and uh, so it said, so there's stories about it that are written in the text that says that the king had a special chamber of love constructed for Gautama Siddhartha was the Buddha's name before he became the Buddha. So he had a special chamber of love constructed for Gautama, decorated with erotic art and illuminated with subdued light like that of hazy autumn sun. Captivated I, it somehow reminds me of some early uh, uh, playhouse uh, or a playboy uh, nightclub or something. I don't know. That's what comes to mind. But it says, so it says, captivated by sexual extravagance, the prince, the Buddha, Sotama, uh, Gautama Siddhartha, spent his days and nights in continual dalliance, experiencing every imaginable sens- sensual delight. Uh, of heterosexual intercourse and with the indefatigable I don't know how to say this indefatigable it's one of those words we talk about you get it (laughs) with one of the beauties of his vast harem and when he tired of them with the professional goddesses of love in neighboring pleasure groves so this is the prince being a teenager, basically, and a, and a very young man. And 
he's being a hedonist and he's being very sexual. And it's said that um, he got turned off at a certain point that was very uh, important in his development. Although even before he says that, even before I tell you that, it said, the Buddha said, there is not a single sensual joy which I have not enjoyed. This is as the Buddha, he said that. That there's not a single sexual joy that I have not enjoyed. So some people like to follow the Buddha. You know, you have your choice. But what happened was during an orgy, it said, following a frenzied orgy, Gautama awoke from a troubled sleep and took a hard look at the harem women, or the harem women, surrounding him in the love chamber, lying about in torn clothing and disheveled hair, with their ornaments, tiaras, and musical instruments strewn about, the girls were far from pretty sight. Some were naked, contorted, and in unseemly positions, with legs and arms askew. Others were snoring loudly with their mouths agape, mumbling to themselves in their sleep or drooling in a drunken stupor. In the lurid light of the oil lamps, the girls had lost their allure. For the first time, Gautama noticed the blemishes and flaws of each woman. Revolted by such meaningless excess, he, he felt as if he had come to the... Come to, he had come to in a cemetery full of the living dead. So, so now, one thing I want to say, there's a caution when you hear this and when you hear me read from this, because these texts are all written after the Buddha, right? And these texts are 99.9% written by men. So you're going to get a little of the misogyny inherent or the unconsciousness, or the un- lack of development that was in the time, place, and culture that the men were living in and born in. So watch out for that. Don't just, I don't just believe this literally, but I, also, I hear what may be true in it, and also I hear the excess that may be there also. <coughs> And so, and so, like I said, the Buddha had enjoyed all of the sensuality, and that in the Bodhicarita, which is a traditional Buddhist text, it said that each potential Buddha, each potential Buddha must taste all sensual pleasures prior to illumination. Now, is that true or not? I don't know. I don't actually think that's true. But I think it really what it says to us is that sensual pleasure doesn't have to be an obstacle to awakening. That it can be part of awakening or part of human life. And then human life still can lead to awakening. Now for the Buddha, what he did was he was a hedonist as a young man. And then he had these kind of experiences. And the most classic experience is the experience of the four heavenly messengers, right? He runs into a, a, a sick person as one of the heavenly messengers because he's, he's living in a, in a guarded world. He's living in a world where his father is trying to surround him 
with just good things so he won't leave. So he'll stay and become king. And here, I'll even give you, I'll go back a little. It, it's a, a wise man comes when the Buddha's born, the king brings him, and has him tell his fortune, and says he's going to become a great monarch. Either he'd be a great king monarch, or he'll be a great spiritual monarch. The guy can't tell. So the, the father doesn't want him to become a spiritual leader. He wants him to become a conventional leader, a conventional monarch, a king, you know, of the kingdom. And so, um, uh, let's see, where am I? Jumping around a Pardon? Heavenly no, oh, thank you. The heavenly messengers really take me back to heaven. <laughs> the heavenly messengers. First heavenly messenger is the sick person. The second he- heavenly messenger is an aging person. Like he goes out of the castle and all of a sudden he sees somebody who's bald and toothless and bent over and walking with a crutch or a cane and you know and they they're not in good shape and he hadn't seen this before because his dad's been protecting him from those things so that's the second heavenly messenger old age and then the third heavenly messenger he goes out and he sees a dead person and a corpse and what happens to human life and what will happen for all of us to human life it's just normal no totally normal you know it's not a mistake for anybody it's what happens Right? But the Buddha didn't know it because he'd been, he'd been shielded from it. His father thought he was shielding from it. So that's the third heavenly messenger. And then the fourth heavenly messenger is he sees a mendicant. In other words, he sees somebody who's in touch with the numinous. And that is the fourth heavenly messenger. And those four heavenly messengers wake him up and direct him to live a different kind of life than the hedonistic life he'd been living. So he becomes an ascetic. He cuts off his hair, gets rid of his jewels, his good clothes, and he goes into the woods and lives with the people who are living on one grade of rice a day. And and uh, But that's not the end of the story either. I'm not going to go into that. But he, he ends up going finding the middle way when after he's almost died a a young Nuba woman beautiful woman sees that he's dying of hunger and feeds him with um, um, thank you rice milk rice pudding I was thinking Um, because I like rice pudding (laughs) you can feed it to me anytime even if I'm not dying Um, and and he, he revives and that becomes the doorway to the middle path for him. <clears throat> and so liberation is preceded by hedonism, by asceticism, and a more compassionate and wise relationship to physical reality. <clears throat> and there's a lot I could tell you about sex in Buddhism because there's, there's an amazing amount there. Um, one of the things... Well, I'm not going to tell you everything. <laughs> I'm going to go on to the, uh, uh, some of the teachings. So here, the, one of the main teachings that you get as you start to read about Buddhism and sexuality, that what he did was he, the Buddha created a monastic order 
for people to practice with him who wanted to awaken. And the monastic order um, began with precepts. The precept, one of the main precepts that uh, he asked people to do. And it, he didn't set out the precepts first. He saw how people were relating or acting and he saw what was helpful and what wasn't helpful. If he didn't think it was helpful, he made a rule about it. So, so the first, what's the first rule? Pardon? No. No, the first rule is about sex. Look, he's a young guy. He's got a young man, a lot of young men following him into the woods to practice with him. They're all horny. They're all, I don't mean it in a bad way, I just mean they're full of young masculine energy. And so, the, one of the first rules is around sexuality. And they become brahmacharyas, brahmacharyas, celibate as a way to practice together and maintain a certain cultural order that works the best for everybody to awaken. At least that's the, that's the theory. And you can, you can talk to the Buddha about that if you disagree. <laughs> Please. But it's, and it's one of the ways you can get expelled from the monastic tradition is there's a few ways, which is murder is one way, if you kill somebody, or <coughs> steal from somebody, or if you boast of false uh, supernatural powers, but also if you're sexual. And, and he got challenged by, about it. There was a fellow named Arita, and Arita said uh, that he thought it's a doomed effort, like someone trying to fence the ocean. You know, which, you know, you, most people can relate to that. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when one is young. And so, and so the first rule, or rules, are about sex. And there are rules like no sex with women. One of the first rules. No sex with men. One of the first rules. No foreplay. Right? So not just intercourse, no foreplay. No sex with animals. And remember, the rules came after people did things, okay? <laughs> so let me, let's just be clear, and it's very clear in the Buddhist text that people did things. So no, no sex with animals became a rule. No sex with corpses. Okay? Corpses, yeah? Okay, everybody get that? <laughs> no sex with pieces of fruit. <laughs> Just think back to what you might have done. <laughs> you know, or no sex with any orifice of any human being, whether female, male, hermaphrodite, eunuch, or no sex with any non-human being, whether it's a demon or a ghost or animal. Even and then it's and this is in the text, even if the penetration is the length of a sesame seed. 
okay? He's not talking about having really fun sex. You know, I mean, you, know you don't do that. And you can't fuck anyone uh, or, or anything that is asleep, drunk, mad, or dead. <laughs> Again, meaning people did those things. Right? Because they're people. And people have their unconsciousness. Have you noticed that ever? <laughs> like all of us? You know. And so there's, there's a, a strict side or a, or a disciplined side about sexuality for the monastic community. And after one of his young men goes and has sex with somebody, he says, and again, and then here's another part that culturally helps on this list. So number of the young men, because people got married young at that time in India and in that part of the world, a lot of the men had already been married, you know, at 16 or 15 or 17, and then joined the Sangha at 19 or 20 or 21. So they still had wives but the wives weren't allowed to come with them, and the wives were not happy about their husbands leaving them, right? Which any partner doesn't generally like if you get left like that. And so one of his young men, the wife came, and the man had sex with his wife. And Buddha was not happy about it. He said, and this is, you'll hear the, the hardness or misogynist temper to this, he says, it is better that your penis enter the mouth of a hidden, uh, hideous cobra or a pit of blazing coals than to enter a woman's vagina. Hmm. Yeah, that's serious. Yeah. <laughs> really, I'm like, well, who wants to join that group? <laughs> that's not exactly my experience. But I haven't had much experience with hideous cobras. <laughs> or blazing coals in that kind of erotic way. <laughs> but it's, it's a famous quote of the Buddhas, right? It's striking, right? But basically what you get as you, as you look is that he really starts teaching them how to stay aware and awake of this, this powerful part of our humanness. That's a lot, part of our aliveness. And so one, first he starts giving a broader way to understand what is the attraction, draw, desire, who is it for. And so he has people um, think of other people, the people they're attracted to, as if they're their mother or father or sister or brother. And how would they feel about them then? Because it usually changes people's feelings. Or he would have them do a, a reflection on the uh, what's called the uh, loathsomeness of the body, of the unbeautifulness of the body. Because we tend to see the outside, and we, we want to see the beauty of somebody's eyes, or somebody's hair, or somebody's face, or their smile, or their, or their, you know, or their body, or their breasts, or their muscles, or their, whatever it is that attracts you. You know, that's what we see. But we don't see the rest of the body. Like, and you could all do this now. Just look at anybody and look inside for a second. Like, see what's really there. 
in, in addition to the outer surface, the outer skin, you know, there's, you know, all the organs and all the, um, all the fluids, right, the blood and the, you know, urine and, uh, and whatever else, look, see, it's all sitting right here, right? No, really look and notice how attracted you are when you see that. <laughs> and so, so he's asking people to look very intimately at human reality in order to be a little more relaxed about the power of the draw of eros and sexuality, especially if you're living in a monastic community where he's trying to create some order, really. So, and then the third thing he teaches people is how to be mindful, bodyful, heartful of the experience. And there's a great quote here. <clears throat> and of course, these are called, in traditional Buddhism, these are defenses. Right? The defense of, uh, they say, three main defenses against the attraction to others, right? Which is thinking of people as your mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, right? Or then seeing the, the, the body as it is, right? Um, the loathsomeness of the body in detail. And then the third is uh, summarized in a famous dialogue between Buddha and Ananda. Ananda is his cousin and disciple who cared for the Buddha for the last 20 years. And Ananda says, uh, uh, how should we behave towards women? And the Buddha says, not look at them. Don't look at them. And Ananda says, but what if we must look at them? The Buddha says, don't speak to them. And Ananda says, but what if we must speak to them? The Buddha says, keep wide awake. <laughs> you know, and he's just saying, pay attention. And you can pay attention and you don't have to deny anything. Right? That's the real beauty, I think, of practice. Because all kinds of things can happen. It doesn't mean we act on them. But we don't have to deny, suppress, repress anything, it can all start to become part of the aliveness of, of the reality that wakes up. So, so let's see. Um, so, and what happens, you know, here's best case, what happens is one becomes free of attachment and identification to desire, to lust, to wanting, to passion. One can have it, but one's not bound by it. One's not limited by it. It's not who we, it's not how we, or it's, we don't end up believing, oh, that's who and what we are, and so I've got to go get it, or I can't, or I'm bad because I feel this, and the Buddha said I shouldn't, or anything like that. And, and it's true of all the various uh, attachments or identifications that can arise about being greedy or slothful or, or uh, uh, you know, malice or uh, fame or, uh, uh, or glory or anything like that. And one becomes free of one's attachment to passion or to lust or to the pursuit of pleasure. 
doesn't mean one can't pursue it if one decides to, but one's not bound to it in the same way. And so, <clears throat> so what happened was, it said that Gotama became unburdened of disturbing passions, limiting thoughts, and other distractions, and was ready one night to encounter absolute reality. So the Buddha had relaxed. He'd let go of the usual identification, of the usual habit of desire, of passion, etc., of thought, and other things. And then one night he was ready to encounter absolute reality. And just personally, I love that phrase, absolute, it's capital A, absolute reality. Because it points at a deep dimension of reality, absolute reality. And then the Buddha awakens, right? He awakens with this opening to the reality that's sitting here for each of us. And this is a very important point I like to stress because we tend to idealize the Buddha and we think we're down here and the Buddha's up there and we'll never get there. Who, who knows? We don't know how and when awakening happens. What we can do is practice and see. Maybe it'll awaken in a moment. Maybe you'll awaken in a moment. Maybe you'll not awaken in this life. Maybe you'll awaken at the moment of death. Who knows? But don't let your the potential of reality be limited by our ideas, our beliefs, our habits, what we don't know. Because we all, we all, and I'm including myself, we all have way more to learn about reality. And reality is here to show us more about reality. It's sitting right here, right in your seat, right in this seat. <clears throat> and so, so, and what's beautiful is you hear in one of the texts, the story, it says, uh, they describe Gotama's enlightenment, what happened in, in the bigger context. They say the earth shook like a woman in the throes of bliss. When the, when, when the Buddha woke up, they say the earth shook like a woman in the throes of bliss, an all-encompassing cosmic organ, orgasm that transformed human consciousness. And it's beautiful because it's a pro-sex, pro-spirit, pro-eros description of enlightenment. That reality wakes up in this amazing way where we don't even know how to describe it. Which is really, and this is my, this is not Buddhism, but Eugene's view, but even sexuality. Who knows what the hell that really is? Really, isn't it amazing? Sexuality? I mean, I'm not talking about having to do it or don't do it, but just the phenomenon itself that we have this sexual component to reality. Like, reality didn't have to be that way, did it? 
right? But somehow it, it is, and then we're born out of it. And then more is born. Reality keeps birthing itself out of it. And it's amazingly powerful and pleasurable and one of the domains of suffering also. And so it said that his enlightenment, Gautama's enlightenment, the earth shook like a woman in the throes of bliss, an all-embracing cosmic orgasm that transformed human consciousness. That's not me, that's from a writer whose name I can't remember right now. John Stevens. John Stevens. So, so okay. So there's the Buddha's sexuality. There's the monastic tradition, and then there's the lay tradition or the householder tradition. And we are part of that tradition. We're living part of the Buddha now, as the part of the householder tradition. And the precepts again are given to the lay people in order to help guide their consciousness to awakening, to freedom, to liberation. And the precepts, which we've talked about many times, are simple and clear, not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse speech, not to misuse sexuality, not to misuse drugs or alcohol. <clears throat> and and I, personally, I think they're quite relevant to what we're talking about because what the Buddha's saying is stay awake. Stay awake to the power of speech. Stay awake like speech. And speech is, also has an erotic component. It's an interactive component. It's amazing how it can impact us for the good or for the bad, or to get clearer, or to be confused, or to convey the mystery of our being alive here together, or to deny it, to block that mystery. And so the power is partly the, the precepts point at things that are powerful, and especially the two I'm emphasizing are speech and sexuality. And so the encouragement is not to misuse this power or this potent domain of reality um, for harm or just to satisfy the ego need to feel good. It's not a horrible thing to do, but it's not the highest uh, um, uh, engagement of Eros itself. And so one of the things that, and especially one of the things you one would want to look at when one is um, following the precept around sexuality is not to misuse sexuality, not to create harm with sexuality for oneself or for others. And so, you know, it means being honest when we're sexual or when we're trying to engage somebody sexually, being real, or, or, or not engaging someone who doesn't have the 
age or maturity or skill or intelligence to know what's going on either. And, and um, to not be manipulative or insincere about it. You can be totally like, oh, I just want sex, but be honest about it if that's what you want. You don't tell somebody, oh, I love you, if you, you just want to have sex with them and then you're going to say goodbye to them two minutes later. So it's staying, it's living in this potent and powerful realm in harmony with the capacities that support awakening and that bring awakening in any realm of reality. <clears throat> and so in the, in the teachings, in the traditional texts, they talk about that the precepts are used for the unshakable deliverance of heart and mind. The unshakable deliverance of heart and mind. I love that phrase. And um, and now I'm going to give you some, some examples of different things that it talked about a little bit. This is from this is monastic. Um, this is a, my teacher's teacher's. My teacher's teacher, that's where it goes. Ajahn Chah, right? Ajahn Chah is one of the, one of our forefathers, four persons in the Theravada tradition and in the insight meditation tradition. He was Jack Cornfield's teacher and other people's teacher who I know well. And he was a fantastic uh, uh, teacher and monastic. You know, he's from the Theravadan tradition, but you read him or you get to know Ajahn Chah and he's like a Zen teacher. He's not afraid of reality at all. He's not afraid to be real. And he's not afraid of learning how to work with reality. You know, I know he told uh, Ajahn Sumedho one time, Ajahn Sumedho was going back to England to teach and Sumedho was the elder Western disciple of Ajahn Chah. And... Um, and Sumedha was going to England and, you know, and Ajahn Chah said, well, you'll see, you'll see how to teach it in England. You'll see, you know, if you have to call it Christianity, call it Christianity. <laughs> That's okay. The name doesn't matter. The principles are what's important, was what he was pointing at. The awakening of people to what's here. That's what's important. He wasn't trying to make Buddhism the next best thing, you know. So, but here's Ajahn Chah talking about his, you know, ninth year of practice and the kind of difficulties that could come up as in monastic life. So he's already been a, a monastic for nine years. And he's saying, and he's talking about during meditation practice, sexual desire arose intensely and he couldn't concentrate. And he, he says, he says, regardless of the position, sitting or walking that took in, that I took in meditation an image of the female genitals kept appearing right boom that's in the mind it's here for all of us whether you like female or male or neither female or male some other genitals I don't know about yet you know whatever you like they're here already just because just we're here and so he says the female genitals kept appearing lust was so strong it almost overwhelmed me. This is nine years of being a monastic. 
right? He said, I had to struggle hard to fight off the intense feelings. Struggling over lustful feelings was as difficult as battling the fear of ghosts in the forest cemetery where he would go sit at night. And in, in his culture especially, where goats are a real thing in cemeteries, that's a very scary thing to do. So he says the lust was so intense that it became impossible to do walking meditation. That's, I never had that, I have to admit, but the lust became so intense that it was impossible to do walking meditation as the penis became sensitive when it came in contact with the robe. Requesting a walking meditation path be made deep in the forest. I requested a walking meditation path be made deep in the forest where I could not be seen. In the dark forest, I rolled up my lower robe all the way to the waist, tied it, and kept it up with my walking meditation. And I battled the difficulty for ten days before the lust died down and disappeared. Okay? That's, you know, that's practice. That's starting to see. And it's not that, oh, he's bad at doing a bad thing. That's what lives here. And we want to start to see how what lives here can wake us up. And really, I have a lot of pages about Ajahn Chah and another monastic dealing with this. So, and, and what's being pointed out is the benefit of celibacy, that there's a simplicity to working with human consciousness just on its own. Mindfulness, body from the heartfulness. And um, so here's, so, so, so that's one part, one domain of, oh shoot, it's, you know, when you're having a good time, it's like, wow, I'm really shocked. I thought I was keeping track of the time, but I wasn't. So I'm going to stop here, and but I'm going to give you the carrot for next week. Because I'm stopping with the Theravadan and a little bit of the, uh, you know, it's import here. And next week we'll start, it says, Mahayana, more sex positive. <laughs> and that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at how the Mahayana uh, domain of Buddhism, especially in Zen, and then later the Vajrayana, the Tibetan Buddhism, started to have a much more positive feeling about how to work with sexuality as part of practice, rather than, oh, we have to get rid of it, we have to deny it, we have to cut it off. And so, and so there's some, and there's some beautiful poems, uh, poetry in the, in the Mahayana, and then a lot more about the um, uh, um, uh, in the Vajrayana. There's more about the tantric tradition, and I'll go into that, and then we'll we'll start to talk, uh, and a little bit about the um, the insight meditation tradition. But I'm going to end with my last, what I said I would, which is my first erotic experience. You know, which I told you one erotic experience I had. This, this other one, which I've said before here, but I didn't say it last week, so I'll say it again, which is, um, happened when I was about four, five, maybe six, um, but I think closer to four or five, and it happened... In Detroit, 
and and there was a summer night in Detroit. I mean, you, Detroit can be really warm in the summer, and it was it was a beautiful night actually. And it was it was uh, it was on a street um, that I read called Tuxedo. <laughs> I have a nice feeling about that street today, and. Um, and um, I was playing with a girl who I didn't know. And the girl had appeared that day, like late in the, you know, at night, maybe six, seven o'clock, late in the day. And we were playing together. And she, I remember she had red hair and she was a little bigger than me and really bright. She had, she was sparkly. At least how I remember her now. And, uh, and I remember her affectionately because she had a lot of life. And that's what I mean by erotic. She had a lot of life, and I'd never met her. And I knew all the kids in the neighborhood, basically, because we, we had three boys in my family, which lived on the top floor of the two-story, and then my cousins lived below, two more boys. So we had a whole gang of boys, and a lot of kids came to our house. And we played a lot, a lot of sports and play happened there. And so, but there's this girl, and I never met her. She has red hair. She's really bright, sparkling a lot. And it's getting dark. And there, for some reason, I'm not getting called in. You know, it must be close to nine o'clock. And what's happening is the night is really starting, and the red from the sun setting is is part of the domain of the environment, along with the darkness above it. And so it's, it's really got to, and it's warm. So it's not, you know, I'm in a t-shirt and shorts or something, and I'm with this girl, and she starts eating a tomato, like a big red tomato. And it's a tomato she picked from wherever she lived, you know, it wasn't a store-bought or anything, and she's eating it like an apple. And I've never seen that. Like, we didn't do that at my house. We didn't eat a tomato like an apple. And I said something, she said, oh yeah, it's great, do you want a bite? And I said, sure. And she gives me a bite, and I go to take the, she gives me the tomato, and I go to take the bite, and I take the bite, and right as I take the bite, this beautiful red and black night, and I take the bite of this very firm and rich, delicious tomato, she kissed me on the cheek. And it was like, it was like, this is a good tomato. <laughs> or it wasn't even, you know, it's, this is good. And then, and then she ran off. And actually, I never saw her again. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a no. I, she, she lives right here. Really. And, that, and that's something to pay attention to. But that's for a deeper teaching later. But anyhow, so that was my first erotic experience. And it was beautiful. It was, that it was her and her red hair, and her aliveness, and her tomato, and the night, and the kiss. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.